0: Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at Clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Jeff Nosrati, chief business officer at Nutcracker Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Jeff. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Arhul. Great, so Jeff, to kick us off and to provide some context for the rest of the conversation, just talk to us about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today.
1: I have something of a wandering path in my career. I started out coming out of undergrad as a chemist, and then actually worked in the lab for a few years at a couple of different Bay Area companies, one of which collapsed and we all came in one day to work and got laid off, uh, and one of which went on to be acquired. So I I like to think I, I got a full sampling of the experiences you can have in the biotech universe. After that, I went to grad school, returned to get my PhD at UCLA. But then coming out of grad school, I went immediately onto the business side and joined the consulting firm McKinsey. I was at McKinsey for a number of years, really a transformative experience for me as a business thinker, but also being able to apply scientific thinking to the, the clients that I served. So I mostly worked with biotech and pharma companies of various sizes, working on things like corporate strategy, corporate finance, and a lot of you know, deal type of work, you know, M&A, that sort of activity. So that was a terrific experience. Uh, I think it really set me up well the rest of my career. And so after I decided not to go on the partner path and since leaving McKinsey, have really been working with small biotech companies, mostly oncology focused because that's where really my passion is, working with early stage science, building drugs up, building the clinical stories and ultimately benefiting patients. So right after I left the firm, I joined a company called Aduro Biotech, which at the time was very well known for its listeria-based pancreatic cancer vaccines and for its work with small molecule agonism of the sting receptor. I will give a little bit of career advice Starting your oncology career in pancreatic cancer is really hard, very difficult indication to treat, but it was a really, again, an enormous growth experience for me to actually work on drugs being developed. So I was with Aduro for a number of years. Through that experience, I did learn that oftentimes clinical trials do not work out the way you would like to, but that's an important lesson for anyone in biotech because as we all know, success rates aren't what we would like them to be. After Aduro, I joined a small cell therapy company called Immunoscape, working on TCRT therapies, again, quite different from small molecules and listeria-based vaccines, but a new technology I was excited to learn about. And then after that, I joined Nutcracker, where I'm now working in the RNA space. So I have jumped a fair bit from modality to modality, which I think is great because you get to experience different types of drugs, different ways of benefiting patients And you get to stretch your your scientific mind in different ways as well as you pick up all these new technologies. So it's been a a really interesting journey. I wish I could say it was extraordinarily well planned from the beginning, but there was honestly a lot of serendipity there. I probably would have never gone down the consulting path if I hadn't accidentally stumbled across a poster uh, for an info session from one of the consulting firms when I was walking home from the lab late one night in Los Angeles. That one serendipitous event kind of put my career on that arc it been a fun ride the entire time. Yeah. Uh, so always be open to opportunity, I would say.
0: Yeah. And Jeff, what drew you initially to the business side? You know, I, I know you mentioned that McKinsey was an important experience for you, but curious what your underlying thinking was to you know s- switch gears and go down the, the business path.
1: Everyone who goes through a graduate school in the sciences goes through a, a set of experiences and it becomes clear to you whether or not the academic path is right for you or not. Around year three, it was clear to me that the academic path was probably not the right one for me. I think I'm a a respectable scientist, a good scientist, but not a great scientist. And to be a successful academic, you really need, I think, to be a great scientist. My strength really comes in different places, in different ways of thinking. So I thought I would find a better application of my skills in the business world than in the science world, which is really probably just a nice way of saying I don't think I would necessarily cut it as a professor. It was a fun journey. I really enjoyed graduate school. It was a terrific experience for me. The route of academia wasn't the right one for me. You know, my passion is really for seeing the things you invent in the real world. And not to say that that doesn't happen in academia, but if you want to develop drugs, drug development by and large occurs in industry. That's really what I wanted to see that the types of projects I wanted to
0: see come to fruition, you know, see actual patients treated uh, and eventually, you know, drugs approved. Yeah. Great. And before we jump into Nutcracker, I'd love to hear your perspective on the RNA space as it stands right now. And obviously, we've heard a lot about mRNA during vaccine development over the last couple of years, but talk to us a little bit about The diversity of applications as you see them and what's what's exciting to you about it?
1: Yeah, great question. And thanks for asking it. So I think when everybody hears RNA, they immediately jump to the vaccines, which is totally justified. I mean, these were world-changing therapeutics that you know stemmed a global pandemic, or at least in part stemmed a global pandemic. So it's natural to think about vaccines. One thing I always want people to think about with RNA is how many different things you can do with these molecules. And it's even to the point where you can use RNA for gene silencing, like with the siRNA companies. You know, Alnylam, for example, has approved therapeutics using siRNAs for gene silencing, where the RNA itself is the drug. You can use RNA for things like vaccines, where the encoded protein ends up being the active you know agent or the drug. And then you can think about using RNA in all kinds of other creative ways. You're essentially feeding the cell a blueprint for a protein. So I- imagining all the different ways. RNA can be utilized uh, to create novel therapeutics, I think, is something that is not fully appreciated in the landscape of RNA. I hope to discuss some of that today with you, but I think it's almost impossible to describe the richness and diversity of things that we can do therapeutically with RNA, and that we've really only started to touch you know, the very tip of the iceberg. So I hope to talk more about that today, And I think it's just a really important part of understanding the RNA space is that vaccines are fantastic, but they're really just the beginning of what can
0: be done therapeutically uh, with this very exciting technology. For those that are not familiar with RNA therapeutics, what are some of the opportunities and also challenges of working on an RNA therapeutic?
1: Okay, so your opportunities are largely around the flexibility of RNA. You can encode virtually any protein. And so that opens up all kinds of new spaces of things you can do. You could never imagine, say, for example, you want to treat a patient with a membrane protein. That's almost impossible to do conventionally, those proteins only fold. in the the cell membrane as one one might expect by their name. But with RNA, that's actually a relatively straightforward problem to solve. You don't administer protein to a patient, you administer RNA encoding the protein to the patient. And as long as that RNA traffics to the cells that need that protein, you've got a therapy that essentially would be impossible using conventional manufacturing. That's just a whole new space that is essentially untouchable conventionally. There's all kinds of interesting protein structures that are similar, that would be extremely difficult to access conventionally you know, multivalent or multispecific molecules that could be encoded by RNA, essentially using the body as a protein factory, which is great because the body is a protein factory. That's what all your cells do is make a ton of protein, or most of your cells, I should say. The challenge with RNA is RNA did not evolve to be an easy, druggable molecule. RNA evolved to be a transient messenger, at least single-stranded RNA, I should say. So you're dealing with an inherently unstable chemical structure. And how you solve that is at the core of your difficulty. But that's not just a problem of the stability in general. It's a problem of how you deliver the RNA. Uh, So you need to develop some sort of technology, usually a nanoparticle, to do so. You also have a manufacturing challenge insofar as RNA stability. You know, for antibodies, other drugs, you can get years of shelf life. You know, so far for RNA, that really hasn't been true. Uh, so you have to solve a stability and logistics problem, which was apparent to anyone during the pandemic of how to get RNA to patients. So you gain this enormous flexibility in how the molecule can be used, and against that you trade really substantial delivery and manufacturing challenges because of the nature of the molecule itself. So you, you, you do pay a price for that flexibility. We've seen that at least the, the problems are solvable to an extent. We manage to distribute the vaccine globally the RNA vaccines globally, I should say, but it wasn't a trivial problem. You know, minus 80 storage is not universally available for some of the vaccines. So it, it's a challenging problem. It's being worked on in a number of ways, but it's definitely worth one worth solving given the tremendous potential and flexibility of RNA itself.
0: Yeah, certainly agree. And Jeff, given the breadth and diversity of all that you can potentially do with a novel modality, Given your role as, as CBO, talk to us a little bit about how you think about indication selection from your vantage point. Oh, great question.
1: There's some generic things about indication selection that are always true. Particularly as a small company, you always want to have a reasonable development path. That's something that I think often gets overlooked in the early science. But as a small company, you know, you, you live and die by, by clinical signals. And so having reasonable clinical development path is something that you always need. Outside of that, with, with RNA, It's all about where can you be different from what currently exists. So in our mind, you know, how you can be different, you can access novel protein structures. So you can develop, you know, high valency or multibinder, you know, protein constructs that are differentiated therapeutically from what I would call normal antibodies or normal bispecifics. So everything is about being different because you have to have a really special reason if you're going to do something in RNA that's not different from conventional proteins. If you're a little cheaper, a little faster, that's nice. But the real benefit comes from differentiated therapeutics that are substantially more potent or substantially more safe than whatever's currently on the market or in development. So I think it's those types of features that we really look for is where can RNA do things that conventional approaches can't? One good example is membrane proteins. Another good example is multivalent or multibinder structures, either using uh, things like T-cell engagers or even FC fusion proteins, where you can really take advantage of valency and multiple binding sites to create things that, again, would be very difficult to address conventionally. Those are the things that look very attractive in the pipeline. I'll add one more wrinkle to that story. Uh, Certainly, we've thought a lot, and we're not the only ones who have thought about this, about the advantages of mRNA and protein replacement therapy. That's currently generally addressed via um, infusions, often high concentration infusions of pegylated protein. We think there's a lot of opportunity for RNA to be a disruptor in that space because of some of the challenges of dosing people regularly with large amounts of protein. So there's a lot of things that I think RNA can really be different and better at, but it always comes back to being better. Being better and having a reasonable clinical development path are, are the things that we really look for as a small company.
0: So on that note, Jeff, let's talk a little bit about Nutcracker Therapeutics and what you all are working on now.
1: Yeah, happy to. So uh, we like to think that we are building the the next great RNA company. We are, I think, reasonably well positioned to do this. It's funny, Igor uh, and team actually founded the company in 2018. So this was before COVID, before RNA was enormously validated with this massive worldwide vaccination process. This bet was made in RNA, you know, four years ago. And as a result, we've developed a lot of foundational technologies. Uh, So we have what Igor Igor Kandros, our CEO, likes to call a complete RNA platform, which means that we have the core technologies for RNA therapy under one roof. And there's not a ton of companies that can make that claim. So the core technologies I'm talking about are pretty simple. I usually lump them into RNA design, uh, RNA delivery, uh, and manufacturing. So RNA design, what we're doing there is we've developed our own proprietary approach to computational design of RNA molecules. This is actually a completely non-trivial problem because for any protein that you want to encode, there are billions and billions of sequences that could potentially encode that protein. The sequences perform very differently. So you always want to trade off between the expression level and the manufacturability of a sequence and being able to make those trade-offs is a pretty critical element in the design of effective RNA drugs. We've developed those design capabilities. On the delivery front, we have our own uh, nanoparticle-based technology called Nutshells, cleverly. And so we have our own approach to packaging RNA in nanoparticles and then delivering it to the body. So we have that, which was developed internally. And then finally, we have the manufacturing piece. So this is probably what Nutcracker is best known for historically. We have these systems called Nutcracker Manufacturing Units, perhaps not the most creative name, but the technology itself is very creative. So these are microfluidically controlled, biochip-based systems for the GMP production of all the core manufacturing steps of RNA. So from creating DNA template to doing IVT to create RNA drug substance, to doing the formulation step to create RNA drug product, we can do all of this internally. And as I said, there's not a ton of companies that have all of these capabilities, you know, under one roof. You know, it's probably BioNTech, certainly, Moderna, certainly, CureVac, certainly, you know, Arcturus. I think Arcturus outsources most of their manufacturing, but there's very few companies, I don't know if any small companies like Nutcracker have these capabilities besides us. And that we have them because we spent, you know, four years inventing a lot of this stuff. Uh, so it's not a trivial effort to have these capabilities in-house. And so that's that's what I think makes the company so compelling from a technology perspective is that we control so much of the story of RNA drug development.
0: Great, Jeff. Thanks for that background. And so where are you right now from a company building perspective and from an R&D perspective?
1: This year has been a huge step in the company's evolution. We've made a clear commitment to the development of therapeutics using our platform. We, for the very first time, posted a pipeline on our website uh, earlier this year, we just shared uh, information on our lead product, uh, NTX250, which is a multi-component RNA therapeutic. We just did a poster on this product at CITSI uh, this month. So We started to talk publicly about the drugs we are developing. And so right now, our real focus is on continuing to evolve the platform. Like we still want to keep advancing our technology, improving the manufacturing systems, inventing new vehicles. But we're really putting the ga- you know, hitting the gas on the therapeutic pipeline. We have three things on the, on the pipeline right now. Our goal is to add to that list and have more more activity going on on the clinical, uh, sorry, on the therapeutic front with the goal of of moving some of those therapies into the clinic uh, as quickly as possible. With 250, our lead asset will be in the clinic in the second half of 2023. We're really looking forward to seeing our first drug in patients in roughly a year from now. So that's going to be a huge milestone for us uh, as it would be for any any drug company.
0: certainly sounds like an exciting time. I'm curious, given that you know, fundamentally the world changed back in twenty twenty and seems like you guys have been very productive over the last couple of years. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, any of perhaps the silver linings from the pandemic at Nutcracker that you observe that you hope outlast the pandemic.
1: Wow. yeah. <laughs> the world did change a lot. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, so I think there's something that happened at a lot of companies insofar as we've embraced remote work to some extent. Look, we're a science company. A lot of folks have to be in the lab with high frequency but we've given folks a lot of latitude in terms of how they manage their time we we're a very pragmatic company that's focused on getting the job done as opposed to time seated sitting in chairs Uh, but ultimately i think that's the best thing that came out of the pandemic for most companies is an embrace of appropriate flexibility in work life a hidden benefit is that everybody had to learn to use video conferencing software I don't know. I'm sure everybody on the podcast remembers the pre-COVID era. Trying to get a video conference set up was always this 30-minute exercise in frustration and misery. So it's exciting yeah. to have to be able to have effective virtual meetings like this one without you know 45 minutes of tech support. That's been, I think, a hidden and unappreciated benefit of the pandemic is that everybody was forced to learn to use Zoom and Teams. Yeah, I totally agree. And even occasionally Cisco WebEx, which I had to use last week, and I had to remind myself how to do so. Same here. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly one of the underappreciated benefits. Other than that, I, I think that the pandemic, honestly, it taught you more than anything resilience in the face of endless like setbacks and frustrations that you had no control over. Now we can't know, like a key, a key person, a key scientist can't come in because they got exposed to COVID. Everything took, and I'm sure this happened to you as well. <laughs> The supply chain was so messed up and it's still messed up. Like the lead time on everything just became so enormous that it really taught people to think way ahead in terms of their planning. This is truly a silver lining because it was very frustrating at the time. (laughs) It did teach everybody to think ahead about how far out do I have to plan anything because I have to assume that nothing is going to be available in a timely manner. So it really did test your planning skills there is strength to be gained from going through that kind of frustration and adversity on a daily basis, which I feel like the pandemic, especially in 2021, really delivered in in high volume. I think we came out stronger for it. I will say, let's just not do that again, preferably in my lifetime. (laughs) One one pandemic was enough for me personally.
0: Yeah, same here. (laughs) Um, Well, great, Jeff. If we zoom out a bit now and think a little bit about the future of biotech, I'd love to hear your perspective on areas of inefficiency and challenges that we're all facing that we should be thinking about addressing.
1: Yeah, I think everyone on this spot who listens to this podcast is probably aware that it is a really difficult time in the universe of biotech right now. And it's been a very sudden shift. So even I think, as you know, the second half of 2021, things were still feeling pretty okay. The IPO window was still open, financing was still possible, and now we've just seen this gigantic shift to a much more risk-averse environment where funding is much harder to get for a lot of folks. And that's going to be new for that's new for a lot of people in biotech because we've had this really long boom time. If you've been around long enough, of course, you've seen the reset in the cycle and been through some of this pain previously, but. That's probably the, the, one of the biggest challenges now is for the new folks who have only seen the good times is adapting to what more challenging times look like. And this is a related phenomenon, but you layer on top of that, there's not a whole set of interesting challenges that are totally out of our control around geopolitics. Uh, I mentioned the supply chain earlier. And COVID, but, you know, think of how dependent and we're certainly not alone in this regard, like think of how much research, like foundational research gets done in China. Uh, and those factories, a lot of those facilities, they didn't operate for huge chunks of time because of the lockdowns that were present in many of the Chinese cities. That's just something mm-hmm. you're like, I have no control over this, but it really affects my operations. All these things that we don't control have affected us. There's a weird dynamic evolving now, and I'm not making any sort of political statement, but just observing how the Inflation Reduction Act has affected big pharma and the things that they have said, all that trickles down to us too. Like ultimately, all the small biotechs would like to partner with big pharma at some point. So the types of molecules that they're interested in shape the types of molecules that we are interested in. So there's a whole bunch of external factors right now that are really making life more, more interesting, perhaps more difficult in many ways to be in this space. It's been quite an adventure in terms of just the last couple of years of all the things that have changed. We'll adapt to them, but a lot of things have been extraordinarily difficult, like way more difficult than they were pre-pandemic as a result of just geopolitical changes that really we have zero say in. We have to work around them
0: and work with them. Yeah. And I'm curious, Jeff, as CBO, given the current environment, how is that informing your approach to your role at Nutcracker?
1: Yeah, great question in a lot of ways. So I think we've all seen in the macro sense that pharma dealmaking is down. Interestingly, pharma has not been really jumping to acquire things. There have been some significant transactions, but in general, dealmaking activity is down and this is particularly uh, painful at a time when there's a lot of companies, we're not in a in a bad position right now, but there's a lot of companies who really are in a bad position and are really desperate for deals. What it's done is, is I think it's set the data bar higher for us. We realize that to get pharma's attention now, you really need to have a strong story to even get on their radar. And I have many friends who are working on the, the big pharma side of the deal equation. So I've got a little bit of inside intel on this. They are saturated with people coming to them with, I've got the next greatest thing, you know please, can we do a partnership here? Nobody says we really need the money, but a lot of folks really need the money. Essentially, it set the bar really high for us internally. I talked to the science teams regularly, and I said, this is not a time when there's any shortcuts in data generation and having, you know, having a story for pharma. You really want to dot you know, all your I's, cross all your T's, have a really complete and compelling story, because otherwise, they're just going to push, they're going to punt and say, come back to us when you have more data. We just don't have time for this right now. The bar just went up, you know, three or four notches due to the severity of the environment and just the number of folks who are in a really bad spot looking for deals, you know, virtually at any price. We're not in that spot, thankfully, because we we did do a significant raise, uh, which we announced uh, earlier this year. So we aren't at the point where we have to have, you know, we have to be beating down the doors of every pharma. If you want their attention, kind of regardless of, of your financial position, you absolutely have to have the strongest data story possible because they can afford to wait. And in a lot of cases, many of these companies can't.
0: Yeah, certainly agree. And I think it's forcing many in biotech now to think differently about what to focus on retaining oh, yeah. optionality.
1: You cannot read the news without seeing you know, a story about someone cutting their pipeline, reducing their workforce, like really focusing. You know, It's all about just trying to survive this very difficult environment where the money is largely dried up for most players. It's tough times. We'll get through it, but it's definitely going to be eye-opening,
0: as I said, for a lot of folks who haven't been through this before. Yeah, certainly agree, Jeff. Well, Jeff, if I could ask you to reflect for a minute towards the end of the podcast now, you know, given all that you've seen across your career, would love if you could share with us, you know, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self?
1: Okay. So I'm going to give, i try trying to give totally generic advice because I feel like that, you know, it's like be open to opportunity and like everybody should be open to opportunity. I do think that really embracing like random things that happen to you uh, is an important thing. I think about how much my life would be different if I hadn't walked by that poster from BCG one day. And gone to that session. I was tired. I didn't really want to like have to throw like grown-up clothes and go to an info session for a company I'd never <laughs> heard of. But it totally changed like the trajectory of my career. Like it, it accelerated in a way that is almost unbelievable to me at the time. So that openness to experience, I think, is a huge thing. You know, if you want to be in biotech, you know, be an embracer of risk. Early in my career, I didn't fully understand that. But your mission as a biotech company is to advance transformative therapies as quickly as possible, and that involves taking massive risk. And if you aren't taking huge risks, not unwise risks, but huge risks as a biotech, you know, think about whether or not this is the right industry for you. Like being very, very aggressive. That's the reason to be in early stage biotech companies is to take enormous risks that pharma is more reluctant to take because they have a different philosophy of development. So always embrace wise risk. It would be be my advice to myself. I wish I had, you know, I think of my early career. Could have done more aggressive things, uh, particularly as a young scientist, that I, that I, sh- I should have embraced more risk, taken more chances yeah. because you, you can afford to do so. Once you start taking risks, it's a fun business to be in. And you learn to love the fact that there's all this uncertainty and that you can thrive in that uncertain environment. Th- that's what I think yeah. is magical about biotech is that you can you can It's a, it's an industry that literally is built on. I won't call it insane risk, but just if you think about the probability of getting a drug approved, right. this is an industry that loves that type of attitude. And um, if if that's the happy place for you, there's I think there's no more fun place to be than in biotech if you love science. So that would be my advice to myself. Learn to love the risk uh, in everything in life.
0: Great. Well, Jeff, on that note, thanks for joining us today and wishing you and your colleagues at Nutcracker continued success as you pursue your important work.
1: Yeah. Thanks very much, Rahul. It was a pleasure to be here and it was fun chatting with you.
0: Same here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.